shotglassdigital.com. Rebel Force Radio's Star Wars Influences is brought to you by Little Debbie Snacks and their new Cosmic Cupcakes. Rebel Force Radio presents Star Wars Influences. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Hey, Star Wars fans, Jimmy Mack here. Welcome back to another edition of Star Wars Influences. This is where we discuss everything that inspired, contributed, and influenced the Star Wars saga from concept to the silver screen. And of course, joining us as always, we couldn't have the show without this man. From London, artist Paul Bateman. Hey, Paul. Woohoo! Hello, everybody. Hi, Jimmy. How you doing? Great, great. Hey, it's, it's good to have you back here on Star Wars Influences. There's been a lot of cool news coming up lately in Star Wars, especially surrounding Star Wars Rebels. And, of course, I know that's of interest to you, Paul, specifically because they have stated on the record several times that Star Wars Rebels will be dipping into the concepts created by Ralph McQuarrie for the original Star Wars trilogy. So what they're basically doing is they're mining some old material that Ralph had come up with. I mean, Ralph's concepts, you would know, is being a Ralph McQuarrie protege like you are and, and, <laughs> and friend to Ralph McQuarrie, you would know that he created just such an abundance of material that was never actually used in Star Wars. And so now that's... And it was never thrown away either. That's the greatest thing, is that... How could you... How could you? But, I mean, when you think back to the 70s, wouldn't that have been just the normal practice once a film wraps production that they pretty much scrap the material that wasn't used? Yeah, I mean, I guess it probably would have been. I mean, a lot, a lot of films, you know, they didn't even really kind of bother with the designer in the same way that they did when, uh, when you know, Ralph, Ralph kind of was on the rise. I think uh, a lot of original kind of concept art, I think, was kind of considered quite secondary and disposable and... You were lucky if they managed to, you know, take it down off the wall when they left the studio. You know, I think they just leave it pinned to the wall and someone to get pinned over it. You know, but uh, yeah, I mean, Ralph did so much stuff that that didn't didn't make the finish line, and it's just it's always fantastic to hear about it kind of resurfacing and, and somebody kind of like realizing what its potential is. And I think Rebels is is really exciting, you know, for a lot of reasons, but not least of which because a lot of these designs, it looks like a, a, they're going to start resurfacing. You know. So, uh, but you know what, what a Ralphie nut I am anyway, I'd like to see all of it come back, you know? (laughs) Oh, really? So that's because that was something I I sort of wanted to ask you was just how you felt as, as a Macquarie purist that, um, that this stuff is actually going to be used in a way maybe that Ralph didn't necessarily intended to be used, you know, I mean, his concepts for one thing are be essentially being recycled and used as concepts for something entirely different. Yeah. I mean, how, how, does that, how does that make you feel that those kind of decisions are being made? Well, I think, you know, Ralph, Ralph to a certain extent was, uh, you know, he's I mean, he such a wonderful person, but as, as an artist, you know, he's one of these people that kind of puts most people to shame in, in, his, in his open-mindedness, you know. I mean, I kind of feel as though... I'm still learning lessons from Ralph, even though he's he's no longer with us. You know, I, I think that he he definitely 
had his head screwed on when it came to design. And, and there are times when, you know, and, and I was aware of the fact that Ralph was, was looking at some of the kind of translations of that, you know, of his artwork into, into products and stuff like that, like action figures and helmets and stuff like that. And, and, uh, Ralph being Ralph, you know, even though he only, only ever kind of drew the thing, you know, he'd, he'd still be able to kind of picture it in full 3d and he'd, you know, he'd, he'd review some of this, this sort of material, the ancillary kind of, you know, merchandise and stuff like that with a very kind of critical eye. And sometimes he would, he would, you could tell that he immediately just didn't like the look of something and uh, he'd have a, a, a list of revisions as long as his arm, you know, um, of how it could be corrected. And it'd be very sort of subtle things like, you know, like just a, you know, the position of something here or the angle of something there. But he, he definitely had a really kind of clear image of things in 3d in his own mind and so when when things kind of you know turned up on his desk that that didn't quite match that you know uh, he, he he would always do his best to kind of communicate you know how he saw it should should change but um and and you know i, th- I think that a lot, a lot of stuff that's out there is you know people went to a lot of trouble to kind of get really really close to what ralph had in mind but um some stuff i think was way off the mark you know and uh, it depends on on the on the on the product but Ralph was always kind of cool about that and very kind of prepared to sort of see somebody else's interpretation of his work. You know, I mean, film design is such a collaborative process. You can't get too precious about anything. I mean, the, you know, the, there could be any number of designs that you do that you don't get a chance to kind of like really, really explore properly, you know. So I'm sure there were many designs that Ralph just kind of, you know, at some point he had to move on and somebody else would take that that idea and, and run with it. And uh, vice versa, you know, there'd be things that somebody else came up with, like Joe, that Ralph would play with, and uh, and Joe wouldn't have a lot of say in that, you know. So it's 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 a very much kind of like a band thing, you know. It's like you're jamming with people. But uh, so you know, my feeling about this is is that I think it's very similar. You know, I think that Ralph understood that you know design for film is a very kind of collaborative and evolving process, and that uh, these things aren't sacred. You know, you might have something that you think, well, that's the way I would like it to look, but it's not necessarily the kind of you know how he expects it to sort of finish up. You know, I think he understand understood right from the start that uh, you know it, it wasn't just purely his decision. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I think also, I mean, the, the thing to bear in mind too is that Ralph was so wonderfully open minded about other people's artwork. I mean, there are plenty of times when I'd, I'd look at designers and kind of go, ah, that kind of sucks but that's great, you know, but Ralph would generally kind of go, I like it, you know, like no matter what it was, he'd, he'd find something about it that was beautiful or he'd see, he'd see the wonder in it, you know, so I'm sure that he would, he would enjoy what they're coming up with for Rebels. I think he'd be much more open-minded about it than, uh, than a lot of designers. I think he'd, I think he'd, uh, he'd appreciate the, you know, the respect that they're paying to him. So. Oh, so that's good to know. So Ralph would have been cool with it. I think so. I think so. Maybe, you know, um, well, I'm, I don't want to speak for Ralph, but you know, I think he would have been. I think he would have enjoyed the fact that they were playing with his designs. He would have taken it in the way it's intended. Awesome, awesome. Now, what what made me bring this up specifically was um, some action figure photos were released of some of these new characters we're going to be seeing in Star Wars Rebels. One of which was the Inquisitor, and the Inquisitor, mm. of course, is the the bad guy dressed in black, uh, wielding a double-bladed lightsaber that uh, appears to be uh, sort of on one of those spinny handles, like, mm-hmm. the, uh, like the General Grievous lightsaber that was created by Hasbro as a, mm-hmm. a children's toy, but uh, now they're <laughs> incorporating... So that's another influence on Rebels. But um, these pictures of the Inquisitor came out, and one of them featured the action figure wearing a black helmet. Yeah. And right away, you recognized that 
look as being something that was developed by Ralph McQuarrie going way back when, when uh, I, gosh, I think that did, am I right in, in assuming that that piece of concept work was under consideration for the look of Darth Vader? Well, as, as I understand it, Jimmy, I mean, it's, it's tricky because we didn't talk to Ralph about every single piece that he drew, you know, so it's, it's, uh, you know, all it would be that would be my interpretation, and I'm I'm sure Stan would would agree that that was that was the case. Um, but I mean, judging from you know, it's it's the it's the number of the piece, the location of the piece, etc. You know, kind of makes us kind of jump to that conclusion. Um, I mean, it's basically it's it's either Vader or some kind of trooper. But I think it's judging from where it's situated in the in the bodywork that he did. I think we're looking at a, a Vader prototype. But uh, that would that would be my assumption, and I think you know most of the folks who've kind of like encountered Ralph's more obscure work, I think would probably think that was the case. I'm sure that when it comes to it, Dave will be talking all about it and be able to fill us in the blanks. But um, yeah, I understand. I I've always as, as understood it to be like an early Vader concept because I know Ralph tried all all types of different masks sort of setups, so he had all kinds of different ideas, including kind of partial masks and things like that, where only his only his mouth was covered and. Things like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it's just, as soon as I saw it, I went, oh, that's one of the unused Vader designs. So, um, yeah, that's that's what I would I would say we're looking at there. Yeah, yeah. So just a simple helmet design for a new character. Yeah, real simple, from, isn't it? But it's yeah. just really effective. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, we have to assume it was black. It kind of looked like a motorcycle helmet. Yeah, kind of like this, like, uh, yeah, layered, like the Sydney Opera House or something too, right? Hmm. I, didn't, I mean, I think, the, yes, the, I, I I totally see that. The thing that always gets me about so many of Ralph's designs is that you know he can keep things so deceptively simple, and it just looks really beautiful. And the rest of us are just kind of you know maybe overcomplicating things so so frequently, you know. And it's like it does you don't end up with something as iconic, you know. And I'm sure that if 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 this helmet had gone through to production, it would have been. Uh, you know, people would have found it as iconic as the as the Vader helmet that we turned up with. Although now it's hard to imagine that, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think like the facelessness of it, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the alien as well. You know, the kind of fact that you can't see his features and, uh-huh. you know, it's just this blank kind of wall of face, you know, it's quite intimidating. So I'm kinda, sure that's kind of like the daft punk look, you know, it is a bit, isn't it? Yeah. It is a bit. Yeah. A bit like Sid Mead's designs. Yeah. There was a rumor going around that daft punk was going to appear at the um, Grammys and perform wearing stormtrooper helmets, <laughs> but I yeah. think uh, that was just a, a silly rumor. I think someone because they were all dressed in white, but yeah. they were still wearing their typical helmets that they always are seen in. And uh, I think someone just kind of twisted that around when they saw them rehearsing, and they're like, "Oh, it's all white, like a stormtrooper." And then somebody <laughs> ran with it and said, "They're." Stormtrooper helmets, but no, that wasn't the case. The uh, it was funny, wasn't it? Because the the I think was it the Grammys where they were sitting in the audience, and then and there were two guys on either side of them, and the guys on either side of them were actually Daft Punk. The two guys in the helmets were two people they just brought with them. No, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, they weren't even wearing the masks, but you have to kind of know what they look like. Yeah, they were sitting beside themselves. Yeah, it was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, you know, there are photos of them online from early right. in their career. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get an idea of what those guys kind of look like. But yeah. no, I don't, maybe that was the Grammys. That's funny. But it would have been cool to see them up there wearing legitimate Stormtrooper helmets and jamming out. But I, I do think the uh, this early concept that they're going to be using now for the Inquisitor, I, mm. I do think that that reminds me a little bit of the Daft Punk 
sort of look. So uh, you discovered this um, this old uh, this old sketch, and uh, where did it come from? Well, um, it's been reproduced before. I know I've seen it out there, oh, okay. um, but you know, like like with a, a lot of the, the archives that we have over here, it's like one of those things where it's it's not as extensive as the Lucasfilm archives, but we have different stuff. So it's one of those things where we have we have a lot of you know kind of like early sketches and stuff that uh, that are half dead, but uh, it's um, it's tricky to know where that one originates because all I have is the file version. So I'm sure if I spoke to Stan, I could probably figure that out. But, you, um, you know what yeah. I'm long overdue for? I'm long overdue to sit down with the Art of Ralph McQuarrie book from dreamsandvisionspress.com yeah. and just sit there and just page <laughs> through it and just go through all of Ralph's career, including, you know, of course, the extensive section on Star Wars. But uh, It takes a while. It's a big book. That's why I, it's like I have to schedule time to look at that book because I will get lost. I can lose a whole afternoon with that book. Just, you know, if I want to look in it to reference something, like, yeah. you know, say I wanted to look at some old Darth Vader concepts that Ralph had, I would find that page. But, yeah. but then <laughs> one thing will lead to another, and it'll be an hour later, and I found myself lost in this book. And uh, it's just such a, a, a great tribute to Ralph and his amazing career. That that book is so comprehensive and so heavy. I think it's the heaviest <laughs> book I own. Oh, it's crazy size. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there was there was one of the trips I made out to the States. I actually brought a load of the books back in, in, in my luggage just so people didn't have to pay exorbitant amounts for the postage, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's... Um, and I know it was really important to Stan. Stan Stice, to anybody who's not familiar with Stan, was the... Uh, uh, Ralph's right hand man and uh, the, the the kind of brains behind a lot of the kind of cool stuff that comes out that's about Ralph um, including sort of a bunch of very very cool books and um, I know it was important to stand that people kind of get to see uh, some of the more obscure stuff that hadn't been reproduced because you know people obviously think about Ralph as being the the Star Wars guy and and that's a great thing that that's what they think um, but I know it was very important to to Stan and to the rest of us that uh, people understand that Ralph was uh, his universe was even bigger than the Star Wars universe and that, that, that there's a lot of variety to be found in Ralph's work you know I mean I think people that are only familiar with his Star Wars art can kind of like think they've got the measure of him you know and, and then when you look at some of his earlier stuff I mean when when um, when Ralph was a was a soldier in Korea you know he did a lot of cartoons and a lot of, the, a lot of stuff that doesn't resemble his Star Wars illustrations at all um, very kind of underground very funny um, you know, very unusual, and and you'd have a hard time sort of recognizing that, that it was him. You you really would, you know. And uh, and then over the years, like a lot of designers, you know, I, I think it's it can be quite encouraging for designers who are out there now, you know, sort of trying to make a living as a as a concept guy, and maybe maybe not not getting there just yet, you know, if they're young and if they've maybe you know uh, not quite at the level yet where where they can do that, you know, it's nice to sort of see that Ralph had a similar sort of journey to most artists where he, he started out in graphic design, you know, kind of designing brochures and, and uh, all kinds of promotional material for all kinds of different companies, you know, before it long, long before he kind of was producing these beautiful concept paintings for films. So, uh, you know, I mean, back when Ralph was a, was a kid, you know, there wasn't uh, the possibility of going and learning to be a concept designer at university. It just wasn't available. You know, you couldn't get courses like that. Um, whereas now, of course, kids can kids can go and uh, study, you know, co- to be a concept designer right from uh, being a teenager, you know. But for Ralph, that wasn't an option. 
but uh and that's so yeah that's that's something that's quite nice to to see when you're looking at a book you see like ralph's journey you know all this time that he was spent at boeing and all the other kind of projects he worked on before he before he went into into films yeah so if any of our listeners are interested in more about Ralph McQuarrie and checking out some great books, uh, go visit dreamsandvisionspress.com or, uh, you know, check out your used bookstores, too. You might find some of the old art of books, art of Star Wars, art of Empire Strikes Back, or even the uh, illustrated Star Wars universe, that uh, book Ralph did in the mid-90s with Kevin J. Anderson. Lots Ooh. of great uh, places to go to see Ralph McQuarrie artwork. But the the, the definitive piece of uh the, the definitive publication is the art of ralph mcquarrie and that book it's still available isn't it there are there are a few left i believe if, if you go to dreamsvisions.com and follow the links for, for all the ralph merch you can kind of you know you can find you can find what merchandise is left um available that pertains to ralph so there are a few other other cool artists on there too but obviously ralph is the coolest yeah, absolutely <laughs> <I'm biased. laughs> and uh oh, what else is the coolest as we continue on macquarie cast <laughs> rubble Sorry. force radios macquarie cast it's turning uh, that way isn't it but uh once again you've returned to star wars insider magazine for uh, issue 148 uh for macquarie revisited it's uh, Star Wars Insider's exclusive special feature, exploring artworks created by Ralph McQuarrie. And uh, Paul, uh, this, this great concept that you and the crew over at Star Wars Insider came up with is that you take production illustrations that were based on Ralph's earliest ideas for Star Wars concepts environments, ships, what have you, and, and you basically complete them. You bring them to to life, and uh, your latest one is Darth Vader's Castle, and uh, it, it's a really stunning piece of artwork. You can see it in Star Wars Insider 148, featuring Darth Vader's TIE fighter flying over a snowy mountain range, heading toward his castle which you can see off in the distance. And your take on the castle kind of uh, has, uh, to me, it, it reminds me a little bit of Cloud City as far as the uh, structures of the buildings and what have you. Um, what can mm. you tell us about this piece? Well, th- this, this was the kind of piece that started the ball rolling, really, which is actually the first you know, official piece that I got asked to do. Um, uh, Matt Martin over at Lucasfilm, super, super cool person. And um, Chris Spitelli and Travis Allen at Repop, uh, they, they all kind of reached out to me when it, when, it came to, um, uh, when it came to this piece. And they basically sort of said that they wanted to do something that was a little castly um, for the Essen convention. They thought it would be kind of appropriate, you know, for a German convention that maybe the, there should be some Star Wars merchandise with a castle on it. And um, Matt um, thought, I was the right person to kind of do this and, and, and being as they didn't have any kind of finished paintings by Ralph of the castle, um, he thought it would be nice for me to sort of finish it up. So it's really, um, Matt, Chris and, uh, uh, um, Travis that, that are kind of responsible for me to kind of following this one through. And then, um, obviously the insider picked up the, picked up the ball and ran with it, you know, bless him. So, um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, it was one of those pieces where I kind of, I was spoiled for choice, really, because Ralph did so many designs of, of, of Vader's castle for, for Empire when it was 
initially kind of being developed and um and he did every kind of castle you can imagine but this when ralph took took these kind of sketches through to the point where they're like you know like a, a proper uh two three five aspect ratio image like a like a movie image you, you can generally kind of assume that it got it got very very close to to becoming a production illustration um but obviously before he got to that you know there was a decision made to to pull that scene from the movie, movie or, or to to take take the script in a different direction and um so you know they decided not to not to follow through so uh i decided to pick the pick the image that looked like it had it gotten closest to the finish line um just purely because it was going to be easier to sort of like properly you know represent what ralph was kind of thinking of um provided i didn't you know kind of go too far off the path that he, that he laid out in, the, in his pencil studies um but at the same time it just kind of felt the most kind of german in a way you know all these mountains and what have you it kind of felt like it would be a nice a nice image but the um the tie fight was added as an afterthought really because um it was one of those things where i kind of felt if you actually look at the image on its own and you're not and it and it's not actually ralph that paints it um it could maybe sort of be construed as something that's not that Star Warsy, you know, because this is an environment you're not familiar with, um, and it's a you know a bunch of towers that you're not familiar with. So although obviously the the style is very Ralphy, you know, you might not necessarily kind of like go bingo, that's that's a that's a Star Wars image. So I thought it was a good idea to add Vader's Tie Fighter just to kind of make it quite clear. Look, this is this is where we are. This is this is Vader's castle, yeah. and uh, that just sort of seemed to be an easy way to to sell that, you know, as a is an idea, so hence the tie fire. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, uh, yeah, and they, they wanted to make um, steins, and uh, uh, at one point there was even talk about snow globes and stuff like that, but they they ran out of time um, uh, because you know uh, these things kind of tick along, and there's everything kind of being done at the same time, and uh, I think it just ran out of time to do it. But um, but they did they did lithographs and stuff like that, so. Um, and uh, they were, they seemed really, really well received. So that was that was that was like nice to to see that people were uh, were cool with me kind of finishing this up. I was I was happy about that. It was yeah. definitely a, a very stunning piece, Paul. I mean, it's it's so awesome. It's, but, it's all but, Ralph, really. <laughs> all the stunning stuff is the stuff that Ralph did. <laughs> well, you know, and and you certainly do a lot to continue his legacy. There's no question about it. And if anyone's going to pick up that baton and run with it, I, I'm really happy it's you. What do you think about my comparison to these these spires, these castle spires, um, and comparing them to the look of the the towers at, at Cloud City? I mean, do you sort of see them coming from the same place? I think um, Ralph, Ralph was quite f- fond of the you know the round buildings. And I think I think you know in Ralph's head, I think it was that it was the one sort of simple primitive shape that um, to him made sense. You know, as as a structure where you think like, well, you would make a round building, but they're uncommon on Earth. You know, they're not well certainly in in uh, in the West. You know, they're, they're less common than square buildings. And um, I think he just sort of thought it was a practical and kind of real shape. Uh, that was slightly otherworldly, you know, if you saw enough of them together. And uh, so I think it was an idea that kept resurfacing. You know, Ralph did a lot of designs for games and things like that as well. And uh, you'd find these, you know, round towers kind of like occurring over and over again. So um, I don't think it was necessarily a best bin thing. I think it was just a general, you know, kind of thing that Ralph liked. You know, I mean, they turn up on Alderaan and stuff like that. You get round towers there. and But you do get many of them on best bin, so I know what you mean. It does have a kind of quite a best binny feel. So some I'm, of I'm these, not sure if it's 
not sure it was a substitute or anything. I think it was just, you know, he liked that feel. He just liked it. Hey, you know, some of these concepts that Ralph did just in, you know, simple sketches of Vader's castle definitely comes up as, is, is looking much more gothic to me and, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. with, with much more angular lines and, you know, definitely structures you would see gargoyles up in the corners and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I know there was talk of like Vader being in the company of gargoyles. I think he was supposed to have some kind of creatures that wandered around the castle grounds. So I don't know if they were meant to be pets or guard dogs or what they were, but I know at one stage there were these kind of, no horned gargoyle type characters that were that were to be found hanging around. I mean, a lot a lot of the images of, of Vader's castle is, is on his own, and you know, kind of very uh, huge, huge environment with like one or two characters kind of pottering about. So it's obviously a place where he was, you know, uh, contemplating uh, getting Luke or you know getting his revenge for the first movie or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think Ralph's thing. I know he did a lot of research into castles, and he, you know, he had a lot of photography. Ralph used to get National Geographic to sort of, you know, to get his get a lot of inspiration from that long before the net, you know. And uh, that was that was Ralph's version of the internet, you know. I think he'd go scouring through his National Geographic and see what he could find, and he looked, definitely looked at photographs of castles all over Europe, uh, predominantly. And then uh, and he he discovered that you know a lot of the a lot of the castles when. Uh, you know, across Europe, where the taller the building was, the more important the, the you know the person who owned the castle was, and stuff like that. So he, he got it in his head that he, he quite liked the idea of this elongated, like long, tall tower. You know, as, as as Vader's kind of home. I think he thought that would be a good thing to do. And I know that that George was exploring all kinds of ideas about where it might be. And at one time, he was talking about it might be on the lava field. You know, so it could be could be a lava planet like Mustafar. Um, so if you look at you look at Ralph's early sketches of the castle, you'll find that some sometimes it's it looks like the same location except for like the terrain. So it'll be the same castle, but like one of them it's ice, and the next picture it's lava. And I think they were, you know, I think they were quite open to what, what it might be right up until they kind of dropped the concept. But that's, uh, that's totally so, interesting. You know, you'll find like an exterior of one building like is is in the snow, and then the interior of the same building. You know, the windows are the same shape and stuff like that. It's in lava, you know, so it's it kind of crosses over. Yeah, so. they just sort of picked it up and moved it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? To think that maybe, you know, because we we all remember that that like Vader, you know, he, you know, even the old school fans long before the prequels arrived, and and we we kind of had so much of the story fleshed out. Well, I think we were all aware pretty early, weren't we, that Vader kind of became physically who he was after f- having a fight with Kenobi over a volcano. I think that's what we were kind of all thinking back in back in the day, isn't it? Right, right. I think that really originated from the uh, first Rolling Stone interview that George did following the release of Star Wars, where he, he sort of laid that out there as to, yeah. you know, who's inside that suit and why does he wear that suit? Yeah. And uh, I think that's when George really first, it was back in 1977 after the release of Star Wars. And so, you know... For me, I was I was eight years old back then, and I certainly wasn't kicking back reading Rolling Stone. But I had friends who had older brothers, and they would spread the word to us, and then we would spread the word around the playgrounds and parking yeah. lots, and you know, baseball diamonds and whatever. And this this the legend of who Darth Vader was and how he got put into that suit. It all went back to him and Obi-Wan having a fight and Obi-Wan kicking him into a volcano. That's pretty much how we boiled it all down. 
And uh, yeah, so we kicked him into the volcano when, you know, in essence, we see in Revenge of the Sith that the, they're on an entire planet that's a volcano. And just by simply being on the, the shore of this lava bed, it was enough to uh, ignite I have to admit, I didn't, I didn't anticipate the Frogger aspect of it, you know, the kind of trying to cross the river, you know. <laughs> Frogger? Yeah, oh, that's the first thing I thought of during that fight. Was like, looks a lot like Frogger, you know, oh, trying to get across the river or the road. <laughs> I wonder what George Costanza would have to say about this. <laughs> Don't but, do it, Anakin. Yeah, Frogger, high, high ground. Like, the, the high ground. Okay, you win. I give up. Boy, how am I ever going to compete with the high ground? <laughs> I'm only the for... chosen one. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so yeah. So I, I wonder if if you know. In George's head, I wonder if the castle had anything to do with his original idea of, you know, yes. the, the duel and all that. I mean, it could be completely unrelated, but um, it's just interesting that it's the kind of like first appearance we have of of Lava in the kind of concept art, uh-huh. you know, and 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 that's where it is, Vader's retreat, you know. So it does make you wonder, doesn't it? You know, I always thought that. Obi-Wan literally did kick Vader into the lava and we would see him go in and submerge completely within the lava. And then you'd of course see that, that cliche, it's a cliche. It's a movie cliche where the hand reaches up. Yeah. Yeah. The hand reaches up and then, yeah, he crawls out, but you know, (laughs) yeah, that could be messy. Couldn't it? It could be a little messy. It could be hard to pull off as a special effect, too, to look convincingly. And that might have been what George was thinking, too. You know, the hand reaching up is... Reaching from the uh, the head in Empire, though, I guess he would have had to keep his head above, wouldn't he? Like, a little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. Just to, to keep those bushy eyebrows he had all the way up until the special edition. Well, maybe that's why how he survived. His bushy eyebrows get stuck to the lip of the volcano or something. That could be it. <laughs> Retcon! Yeah. <laughs> Get the story group on the phone. Hey, uh, and also something else that makes me think of that is the actual playset that came out, the the Mustafar, the duel on Mustafar playset that came out back in uh, 2005. I have that up in the collection. And they have this this thing where you actually can make Obi-Wan kick him into the uh, volcano. Yeah, it's like, it's a disc. Suck him or something. It's, it's, it's. It's a, a little shaft at the bottom of the set, and there's a disc that's hinged. So right. the disc is supposed to represent, like, the molten lava. Uh. And when you kick someone into that disc, it, you know, spins over. And mm. so the figure gets submerged, quote, unquote, submerged, uh-huh. and the disc flips over. And when the disc flips over, there is the lava bed, but there is a hand reaching up out of it. Ooh. I kid you not. Like one of those kind of queen banks you used to get with the skeletons. Um, those, yeah, well, I, kind of. But, I mean, it's not like the hand reaches out. It's just <laughs> part of the disc. I'm going to take a picture of it. I'm going to put it up on our post for this show. It's Shot Class Digital. I suppose when you think about it, if they had been fighting on the side of a volcano, it would have been a bit sus if they'd walked up the volcano. You know, you'd be kind of like, where are you going? Like, well, I'm not really sure we should be fighting uphill. Let's just stay down here, you know. You wouldn't really follow him up a hill, would you? Fine. Well, what if he's already up there, though? <laughs> what if that's so you know, at the top? Yeah, I suppose you'd have to. That's you? where he hangs. I, I just think, you know, being in that proximity to an active <laughs> volcano, just by being there, you would melt uh-huh. <laughs> on the scene. You know, lava or not, it would just be so hot <laughs> that you would be gone. 
I just thought that, like, you know, when I thought about that scene as a kid, I remember thinking, like, oh, wow, this is going to be so cool when they finally get around to it. You know, and it, it was another one of those things where I think, like, the, the reality of it can't necessarily measure up to your your, uh, your dream version of it, you know, for years. But uh, I, I just, I thought I would enjoy that sword fight way more than the, the one that was in Phantom, but I didn't. I was really disappointed with the sword fight. It just felt like tennis to me. It was just spin, 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 and then, like, jump, jump, jump. It was all like a... For me, it was like an arcade game. It's just like I say, Frogger. It was it was the oddest thing. It's somehow that kind of aspect of it, the leaping from piece to piece. You know that that took away from the drama of it for me. But uh, yeah, That's I don't really know. Interesting. <laughs> you can't like everything. But uh, yeah, I mean, and and also like it was strange the way that that kind of like made you reframe Obi Wan, wasn't it? You know, you kind of did go from thinking oh, Obi Wan's this really cool dude to like what a git. You know, <laughs> how can you leave your friend like slowly sliding into a lava pit? That's really like not good, you know, not cool. <laughs> well, he, you know, assumed he was beyond redemption and. Yeah, but even so, like put him out of his misery at least, you know, like. <laughs> I yeah. guess, I guess, but you know, <laughs> oh, boy, that's a tough one because. Well, the, it's the only bit there where Athena kind of goes, oh, this is just horrible. You know, like she can watch, the, watch them all, no problem. But that one bit, she's yeah. like, I can't even look. It's, it's a really, that's a really bad situation. <laughs> How are your kids with it? Were they cool with it? I mean, it all seems like, I'm not sure. I, I think I would have really been grossed out by that as a kid, but uh, maybe not. You know, it's funny and it's, it's really become very obvious to me that I am deficient in my um, consumption levels of Revenge of the Sith. And what I mean by that is that Revenge of the Sith is the Star Wars film I have seen the least. And I don't know why that is. It was when The Phantom Menace came out, I I must have seen that in the theater 15 times, which is on par with the other Star Wars films. The original Star Wars film, oh my God, I I can't even tell you how many times I saw that in the theater because they kept re-releasing it every year. And I would, you know, every re-release, I would go at least twice, Mm. at least once of those times during the re-release, I would stay in the theater for back-to-back showings. I just wouldn't leave. (laughs) They couldn't get me out of there. But, um... And I did the same thing for Empire, um, mm. but you know what? Return of the Jedi, that one I didn't see as much as the previous two. And so it was funny to see history repeat itself yeah. when it came time for the prequel trilogy, the third film of that trilogy, I saw the least amount of times in the theater as opposed to the fact, you know, I saw The Phantom Menace about 15 times in the theater when it was released. I saw Revenge of the Sith maybe maybe five or six times. Mm. And I know that's a, that's many times to go back to see a currently running movie, you know, um, but, but, you know, it, it's, it was a different time though, Jimmy, wasn't it? I mean, I remember just kind of like thinking, Oh, I've got to see this as many times as I can, because once yeah. it was gone from the theater, it was gone for years. It was gone. Like, yeah. Oh, well, that's my last chance to see it. I, I, no. I, maybe it well, was a mo- I, Yes. Yeah. Well, I know exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you think you'd never see it again. They never showed star Wars on TV either, which was a chip. I must seem so alien to kids these days. I must just think, like, crazy old guys. But, like, it just it's so bizarre. I mean, imagine the film you really love. I, I know people kind of, like, complain when, a, you know, Blu-ray takes, like, a year to come out or something. But like, imagine if you had to wait, like, years and years and years to ever see it, period, full stop. Like, no VHS, nothing. Nothing. You know, and you could, you could maybe put down, like, 
$50 and get five minutes of it on Super 8 or something. Right. Or <laughs> Silent. You, or there was always that kid whose dad had some uh, pirated copy and it just looked like garbage, you know, on uh, those early VHSs too. Back when, you know, not everyone had a VHS. So it's like, hey, did you? Well, while we're on the subject of Mustafa, I have to say, like, when, when, you know, I worked on the pickups over here for Revenge of the Sith. And I remember thinking, like, well, this is going to be all blue screen. And, and for four days, that was pretty much all we saw, blue screen, blue screen, blue screen. But then they had, they had a lot of flooring just lying, lying out in, on different, you know, different parts of the stage. And it was obviously just designed to make it easier to, uh, to uh, comp together. You know, it's, uh, quite often it's the, the floor that, you know, they'll, they'll kind of leave it as it is because they can keep the shadows. And it's, it's, it's easy to kind of, you know putting what's around them by comparatively when you know uh, and uh, make sure the, fl- the feet are in the right place and all that kind of stuff so they'll quite often you know bring flooring on set even if there aren't any other props you know if there's not no there's no uh, walls or ceiling or anything else it's all blue screen you, you might still get a floor and i noticed in this one corner they had a heap of flooring and um being a star was obsessive like yourself jimmy I was looking at it kind of thinking, don't ever forget what any of this flooring looks like. Because when the stills start landing, I want to be able to say, like, that's what that flooring was. You know, like, that was where it was from and stuff like that. And um, so I made a point of walking over as much of it as I could, being as it's on the floor anyway. And, you were, you know, obviously it was you were allowed to. Just so I could say, like, right, I walked on Kashyyyk and I walked on Coruscant and I walked on, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like. Just so you could, yeah, you could have that cool factor. So it was, it was nice to get a chance to at least kind of put my feet on Mustafar, even though uh, I never saw any sets or anything like that for it, you know, because they weren't needed over in the UK. All right, uh, so cool. So that that's extremely cool. I mean, you're you're planet hopping, Um, but I mean, of course, that's of great importance to us as Star Wars fans. I mean, just the the knowledge that you were there, Paul. I mean, fill in people. What were you doing on the set of Revenge of the Sith? Why were you there? Well, it it was one of those things where I got a call at the last minute where somebody said, "You you fit this costume." How would you like to do it? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, no way. You know, <laughs> so I was there in a heartbeat and it was the, um, it was the Mina Tills costume, but it was like, just like, you're going to be like a Senator at the, at the, at the opera house. So it was one of those things where I was walking around in the Mina Tills costume. And I know it was the Mina Tills costume because I was talking to Dave at the time, like Dave Elsie, um, who, uh, became a friend of mine, but the, um, uh, there was only one kind of calamari mask that had that you know all the animatronic kind of features so inside it you had all these cables kind of hanging down and obviously all the mechanics of the mask you know and uh, that was the mina mask and then the other the other guys kind of had the just the straight pull on rubber heads you know and um it was just one of those things where anakin was was you know zooming up the up the stairway to uh, to go to see palpy and we were all the minions kind of strolling up the stairs you know yeah and uh, so they built they built life size staircase, but it was all blue, and and uh, the stage was completely blue, and uh, there was no real speeder, obviously, and and uh, Hayden just kind of bombs out of the speeder and zoots up the up the stairwell, and um, and uh, and obviously then they kind of shot a few, shot a few kind of you know cutaways to different directions, different crowds of people, and things like that, and uh, yeah, it was it was good fun considering it was a really kind of simple stage, but very bizarre to be hanging around sound stages in the UK and there's, you know, Palpatine and uh, Anakin and, and whatever you're kind of standing around outside, you know, having a smoke and things in the, uh, in the lovely British weather. Yeah. But uh, yeah, very cool. 
Good, good <laughs> film for Bebop. <laughs> very cool. Are you kidding me? That's a good. very understated, very cool. Yeah. I'll tell you what's really strange about wearing those helmets that nobody seems to mention is how heavy they are. You know, yeah. the masks. Right. Like, if you want to know what it's like to wear one of those animatronics, and, and Dave, bless him, was just absolutely wonderful trying to get this thing on me. Dave Isley, he was a creature shop guy? Yeah, he was the head of the creature department. But um, him and his partner, Lou, you know, he's, he's a genius too. Like, she makes the most amazing costumes and... Uh, in her own right, you know. I know Trisha Big, who was handling most of the costumes for for Sith, but but uh, Lou, Lou makes fantastic kind of you know uh, creature creature creatures on on her own right. But but the um, yeah on the on the on the soundstage, like it was one of these things where it's like, well, the costume fits me no problem, but will the mask? And it was one of those Cinderella moments where it was like, if this mask doesn't fit me, then I'm not doing this. <laughs> you know, I, I have a giant head, so it was like. <laughs> It was like, this, this calamari mask better fit. You know? <laughs> yeah. And if it doesn't fit, I'm going to cut a bit of my head off so it does fit. <laughs> hey, with all the uh, animatronics going on in there, all that machinery, does that make a lot of noise when it's on yeah, your head? Does it does, it, even when it's not being used. you know. And obviously for that scene, it wasn't necessary for them to kind of get it all working. But it does It does kind of sound like a typewriter, you know, and it feels like a typewriter. Imagine you've got a typewriter <laughs> sort of chained to your forehead. That's kind of what it's like. I think, uh, I think I've seen the concept drawings for typewriter man and, yeah. <laughs> that's literally what it feels like i mean there's a lot of mechanics in there you know and um typewriter yeah, man <laughs> and it takes almost no exertion for you to like get really out of breath yeah. so it's it's not surprising you see them with these fans kind of pouring inside when they're in tunisia i can't imagine what it's like to wear that kit over there but uh yeah i mean it was it was Bizarre. I mean, I t- told you about meeting George that morning as well for the first time, didn't I? Did I tell you about that? Let, let me see if I got this story right. He uh, actually said hello to you. Yeah, I said hello, Paul. He said really Paul. Cool. Yeah, he he came up to you and said hello, Paul. But I think this was a case of mistaken identity. That's right. Well, the guy, the guy who plays me properly, the guy who gets the credit for it because he's obviously he's a professional, unlike me. Um, <laughs> he, he was his name was Paul Davis, and he was based in Australia. And they didn't fly him over just for a scene where he walks up some stairs. So uh, yeah, it was like stick any stick any Paul in it. And um, <laughs> but what they didn't anticipate was Paul has dark hair and a goatee beard too. So it was one of those things where in the morning, I'm sure just George just passed a cursory glance over me and just went morning Paul. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> George knows me. Get a reality check, but. Uh, yeah, it was good fun. It's the but, uh, the one thing that impresses me about George when he shoots. Well, there are many things, but but like, is how early he gets his his first stuff in the can. You know, like I mean, having worked on a lot of films over the years, you know, it's quite surprising how late you can you can find yourself kind of actually getting started. I mean, I've worked with Ridley Scott in a few films, and he quite often doesn't get his first shot in the can until like noon, one o'clock. Even if you've been there till four, since four in the morning, but George was like, you could see he was getting itchy fingers, kind of like I need to get something shot by ten o'clock or I'm going to go crazy. Yeah, you know, he was just dying to get it happening. You know. Well, plus you know he was the man funding the entire production, so of course he's yeah, going to speed right. things up if he can. Well, it's really professional. I mean, there there are all other people that do that, but it's just it's it just shows you that he's you know he's just keen to get as much much done as he can and the sooner he starts the more he can he can work with and, and he's always said he was an editor's director wasn't he i mean he's, yep. he's a yep. guy who loves to cook so that's true that's true so uh you were there for that great moment at the opera house where uh anakin's <laughs> running up the steps no half of industrial lot of magic were in it too weren't they on the, the other end when he comes out in the corridor and uh in the in the in the opera house itself i think that was that was they decided right okay 
any crew member that wants to be in, in Star Wars, that's the time to do it. Yeah. And well, George himself, right? <laughs> yeah. So he, kids, uh, right? he can be seen up there all, uh, all yeah. you know, with the blue paint on his face and everything. Uh, bearing there were too many caftans in Sith. That was a problem. That was uh, way too many caftans. I think, I think like, I don't remember any caftans in the original trilogy, do you? No. None. Well, maybe on Cloud City, maybe, maybe. No, maybe a few. I don't know. If you, if you, you know, if you think about it, how many, how many Kaftan wearing aliens there are in the prequels? There's thousands of them. Hmm. Now, the, I think it's just because it's practical. It's real easy, you know. Right. You, you can open it up and slap the helmet on and Velcro it all up, you know. Whereas when you've got to dress somebody properly in regular clothes, it's a bit of a trick. So you said that you would see this flooring surrounded hmm. by blue street. And so let me get this right. You were yeah. there, you're there, <laughs> you're there on the sound stage. So then you just kind of wandered off and sort of started looking at other stages there. <laughs> Wait, just tell me like I'm not a pro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll just have a potter in here and have a look around. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, come on, you know, it doesn't say you're, you're, you're not a professional. If well, you're- it's, it's tricky because, you know, obviously I knew some of the crew members and stuff like that. And yeah. I'm familiar with the stages and the studio and stuff like that. So it's one of these things where, you know, I know what where they keep what and what's what goes where and what's what's okay to do and what's not okay to do. Uh-huh. And um, a lot of the, a lot of the stages and setups that you know for the pickups were very open. And uh, you know, you might be filming in one corner and over the other side of the stage is something else. So it was like that. You know, you, you find yourself working in in the stage in one corner and there'd be another little you know setup somewhere else in the same stage. Mm-hmm. So, so it was you know once you once you're uh, once you break in and you're kind of away from the action, it's like, you know, you can just take a little potter around as long as people kind of know where you are, you know? Yeah. So, uh, but, um, the day one was interesting because when I went down for a fitting, just to make sure that the costume fit fitted, you know, Anthony Daniels has been fitted for his, for his costume. Um, what was his character called? That wasn't three PO. The, the, the top, he had a, like a tall hat and stuff, didn't he? He was, um, uh, that, that, that sequence in the, um, the, the nightclub, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a uh, Lieutenant Faitoni, I think they called him. Didn't he? I didn't he surface in something like that for for Sith. I can't remember, but I know he was, he was over for a fitting of some description. Anyway, I didn't see what he was wearing, but I, I just assumed it was something like that. Mm-hmm. He was he was around, so I went for my costume fitting at the same time. So that was kind of bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> That's bizarre, but, but cool. So, what other planets did you walk on? You say you were in Kashyyyk. <laughs> What was the set? Was it um, the uh, headquarters, the Wookiee, uh, the war room they had there? It's just flooring, you know, like they had all the, all the different types of flooring just in case, I think. So it was like a bit, oh, little okay. Mustafa, yeah. there was a lot of that. So I think they were, they were still to do a lot of scenes, you know, a, a lot of pickups for that. And uh, a little bit of Coruscant action as well, I think. So so you went and uh, started walking all over their set pieces. <laughs> <laughs> It's, yeah, dusty feet. Yeah, wiping your feet on it like it's a throw rug. No, no. Of course, like you said, Paul, you are a professional, and I don't mean to diminish that in any way, shape, or form. But damn it, it was a Star Wars set, and of course, you had to look around. It's just too cool. It is one of those things where you do kind of find yourself um, wondering, you know, what it was like for, for for people who worked on the original movies, you know, because the British studio system. We've we've been known for having bars inside the studios, which is like you know a, a lot of the crew members will will skip the kind of you know the the provided catering and scoot off to the bar for something a bit more substantial, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it used to be quite quite commonplace in the seventies for people can, can come back, you know, a little bit worse for wear, depending on the 
the film they were working on, especially if they were working with Oliver Reed or something, you know, some, something like that. But, hmm. uh, huh? Yeah, Athena was just reminding me, it used to be called a liquid lunch over here, you know. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we, we still call that, that's what it's called here too. Yeah, so not not that I would know, not that I would know. And obviously that's not, that's not a great thing, having your kind of, you know, your cast and crew coming back half drunk, you know. But uh, but that that that's since kind of you know um, most of the bars have all closed and and it's not possible to kind of get steaming drunk on set, which is a, probably a very good thing. Yeah. But uh, but uh, it does make you wonder about back in the seventies when you know everybody was smoking and stuff like that too. It must have been a must have been strange as soon as they the shouted cut and everybody's allowed to kind of like kick back and relax. You know, just seeing all these stormtroopers hanging around, you know, <laughs> smoking with the cups of tea and stuff like that. It must have been very odd. It is a strange business when you think about it, you know, because like, people kind of see what's in front of the camera and you get to see all this stuff that, you know, that, that turns up on Blu-rays and stuff like that. But there, there, are, there is a very kind of ordinary aspect to, to every, every movie that's made, however big it is, you know, and like, you know, you can be on something enormous like a Harry Potter film or a Star Wars movie and then like five minutes later, it's like everybody's just kind of chilling out, sitting on the floor, having to talk about, you know, the most mundane things, you know, that you talk, talk, talk about in any other job. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, well, so, yeah, so, you know, I mean, it's it's so, life and uh, you, mm. you, you get together so many people, you're bringing together yeah. diverse personalities, people with different backgrounds and everything. And so it sort of loses its luster, you know, its glamorous showbiz <laughs> luster. And I mean, that's the case yeah. with anything. The glamour has never been about that for me anyway. I'm always I've always been infatuated with, you know, film design. I've always found it like that's the exciting thing for me. Mm-hmm. I remember working on the set of Sleepy Hollow when that was, you know, set up at um I think it was over at Shepparton. And, um, you know, I'd been in the soundstage like not maybe like a fortnight before. And then all of a sudden you kind of walk in and there's this huge tree and a forest, you know. And the previous time you'd been in there, it looked like an office or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the glamorous sort of aspect of things for me, I think, when it comes to working on the film business. It's just like the environments are just so wonderful. Uh-huh. The stuff that people make is, is, is the thing that's glamorous. Yeah. And it's celebrities are just people like everybody else. So, yeah, but you get yeah. off on the, uh, the actual process of filmmaking, the, uh, I mean, that's, physical work, the, uh, yeah. the I mean, that was, that was the only shame about working on Sith for me. I think it was that, uh, it would have been nice if it was, you know, a little more old school. It would have been cool to see, you know, a few more kind of practical sets. Right. Right. So, and that was those out in old spot that stage. So, but, uh, but how cool, how cool. What a great experience for you to uh, be able to have that opportunity to work on the set of Revenge of the Sith. And, of course, the, the, Mustafar, uh, the Mustafar environment really did have its sort of uh, genesis back in those old concept designs for uh, Vader's castle. And then to continue with that concept, in Return of the Jedi, the Emperor was originally going to have his throne room well underground on uh, what evolved into the planet Coruscant. I believe uh, back then it was known as uh, Hadabaddon. Yeah. Or, uh, how do you pronounce that when you see I'd, it? I'd say it the same way, which I've always thought, I wonder if that's a joke, you know, Hadabaddon. Yeah, right, right. Bad day. <laughs> you know, I was talking to Sam Whitwer about this during our commentary, and he pronounced it a different way, but I mean, I guess that's all irrelevant. But uh, so Hadabaddon was the planet that was going to be the Emperor's throne world, and he would have been down under the surface, closer to the planet core, and his throne was going to be surrounded by uh, pools of lava and rock, and that's where the final duel between Luke and Vader was supposed to take place. Yeah. 
I mean, it, 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 it looked like a fascinating kind of, yeah, a fascinating environment to, for the story to go. I and mean, I, I, I wasn't sure what to expect from, uh, from Mustafa when it, when it came around, but I, you know, all I had to kind of base that, base my assumptions on with, with the production illustrations that Ralph did. And he did, he did do quite a few of, <coughs> had, had a bad on, had a bad on rather. <laughs> yeah, right. It's really tricky, isn't it? It's no wonder they changed the name, but the, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it looked it looked really interesting. I mean, to me, it kind of felt as though, you know, you know, like when you look at um, when uh, on uh, I think it's on the Death Star two when they go and see the Emperor and the lift kind of comes up and all that, you know, and, and it's it's very kind of red and you've got the red guards and and those you know Luke steps out of the the, uh, the elevator and uh, I always kind of felt like that was probably where they were going with uh, with the the lava sequence. I think that we were probably going to get a lift and it would get, lead to this corridor that had all these stripes that ran down the length of the corridor and that, that uh, appear in one of Ralph's paintings. And then all of a sudden you kind of go from this really kind of like sterile kind of cold uh, environment into this huge, you know, kind of natural amphitheater of, of lava and stalactites and stalagmites and all that kind of stuff. So it looked like it was going to be um, a very literal hell, you know, like kind of liter- underground as well, which I kind of felt like really ad- added to that kind of Dante-esque kind of quality. And I, I could see why they would they would do that, you know, for, for Vader's kind of fall or something. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was quite surprised to find that the that Mustafa was very kind of exposed and open and, you know, quite a large landscape with mountains and things like that. But um, I guess I guess that was a... That was a sensible approach when uh, when you can do anything you like now and you can be as big as you want with uh, CG environments. You know, exactly. I think a lot of the environments of the original trilogy were quite you know were quite contained, weren't they? Apart from uh, apart from the stuff you could just kind of find in the real world, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, outside of the uh, the Hoth tundra, mm. um, that was uh, certainly wide open, but uh, you know, it was just a snowy environment. You know, much like this locale where Vader's castle was. Was it supposed to be on the planet Hoth? Um, no, I don't think it was. Um, uh, or, well, I mean, at least I haven't seen the word Hoth associated with that image anywhere. So, as far as I know, no, I think it was just an an ice planet. But uh, I mean, because the, this is what, where it gets a little confusing because they had the you know a rebel base that was that was um, you know uh, housed in the remains of a of a destroyed kind of um, ice castle, as it were, in 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 the snow. So the, there was like an original Ralph concept of it for a kind of like a, a futuristic looking you know buried city in the snow um, that the rebels kind of commandeer and take over and occupy rather than uh, have an echo base. So you've kind of got two concepts for two kind of, you know, snowy environments in, in uh, the early stages of Empire. So who knows if they were meant to sort of take place on the same planet or if it was just like we haven't figured out whether the good guys or the bad guys live here, but we know that there will be a snow planet, which seems probably quite likely that they were, they, they, maybe they hadn't figured out where the rebels were going to be. And so like they were kind of toying with the idea of maybe the bad guys would, would be on an ice planet too. But uh, yeah, it's a little confusing. But um, I think just because they were kind of wide open about it at that stage, I think anything could have happened. I think it could have been anywhere. So, you know, lots, lots and lots of concepts that didn't get realized for Empire. So. Well, you know, maybe those concepts could be realized for Star Wars Episode Seven because yeah. there have been some hints along mm. the way that Star Wars will be returning to a snowy environment a la Hoth. Mm. Um, George said as much uh, in the the series of videos he did, sort mm. of his um, 
sort of his exit interview, if you will, when the mm-hmm. uh, sale of uh, Disney to Disney was announced that Star Wars was going to become a Disney property. George and Kathleen Kennedy sat down with Lucasfilm's Lynn Hale, and they recorded a, a series of interviews that were released on YouTube. You can go to the StarWars.com channel there on YouTube and find those interviews. But at one point, George said that... He didn't want to be the guy out there going through the snow with everyone else in, mm-hmm. in regards to this new film. I get to be a fan now, which is what I was saying before, and I sort of look forward to it. It's a lot more fun, actually, than actually having to go out in the mud and You could actually blog about what we're doing and how we're messing things up. And no, 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 no. I just say, gosh, they're out in the snow and it's cold. And now we have this report coming from... Icelandic website Visor, V-I-S-I-R, um, that uh, there has been a crew over there shooting plate shots that are mm. going to be used for Episode 7. And should they like the way it looks, they might mm. actually bring cast and crew out there to the actual physical location yeah. and shoot up there uh, in Iceland. Uh, Did you see the, uh, the image that was posted on, on the official site of the um, a couple of senior members of the art department and uh, JJ and what have you talking in front of concept art. Did you see that? And uh, they had, uh, they had the images recent, of the Falcon in the background. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was fairly recent. Uh, why, did you discover some sort of snowy shot in the background? No, but there's, there's one shot that looks like it's extremely reflective. And the only, the only thing I, I, I would have said, judging from the image, it's very, very difficult to tell. It could be ice, but I think it's water. So, you know, I think it's, I think that's, that's probably more likely than snow. Just because I think all we, all we kind of really saw of, um, the Kaminoan, you know, sort of setup was was very kind of turbulent, stormy water, and these and and almost immediately we end up in this very sterile kind of you know lab like environment. So I don't think that we've really explored a kind of a watery environment in a way that you know environments are normally explored in Star Wars. Like thoroughly, you know, you spent a lot of time on Hoth wandering around. You spent a lot of time on Tatooine, you know, getting to know the place. But we've never really kind of explored properly an environment that's that's covered in water, you know, and certainly not underneath water apart from. Um, Otto Gunga, which always kind of felt quite small and lakey, you know, don't you feel that? It's well, kind yeah, of like, they're in the swamps. Yeah, so it, it almost feels like kind of like I don't know, like a like a puddle in on Dagobah or something, rather than a, <laughs> a huge, you know, watery environment. So I think that's probably where they'll go. But that's just me basing that on a couple of photographs that are very difficult to kind of you know to figure out what they are. But it looks like the Falcon flying over a watery environment. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. If he went there, but I don't know about ice. I mean, I think that's just a just George sort of saying he doesn't want to be in an uncomfortable environment. I'm sure hot, you know the Finn stuff was the most difficult stuff to shoot because of the oh, conditions. Oh no, no, no! That's an obvious hint. It's an obvious clue. Come you on, think? George is he knows what he's doing. He's 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 letting things slip. We're going to see <laughs> snow in episode seven, guaranteed. I don't know. Yes. I don't know. Yes. I think that's just him saying he wants to be freezing your bits off you know on on location (laughs) (laughs) i'll tell you what george has been spending so much time in chicago with his wife melody hobson you know i mean so he knows what it's like to get cold yeah you want to go to an icelandic environment uh, you go there to 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 for milder climates than what we've had here in chicago but yeah i don't want to talk jason gets mad at me when i talk about how tough it is living in chicago (laughs) 
like, oh, you get gripped pretty bad. I mean, like we have, like in January, you know, there've been quite a lot of shoots in January where you just think, oh, this is the worst time to make a movie. Right. We've right. been out on location, like you know, where you just think, oh, stop raining. You know, where the cameras just have to keep stopping because it's just too, the rain just keeps starting and they can't, or they don't have consistent lighting. Like, you know, in California, you have a tendency to have the same kind of light for a long period of time because it's always sunny, you know, but in London, it's all over the place. It's like dark light, dark light, dark light, which can be a bit of a nightmare for uh, for the lighting team and the cameraman. It's, it's, it can be extremely frustrating, frustrating if they're outside, you know. Absolutely, and um, yeah. I know when they were shooting the Alien movies, they had a lot of problems with just snow, even though they weren't shooting outside a lot of the time. It was just so flipping cold that, like, on a big sound stage, it, you know, the weather gets in. I mean, you just, you just feel it. You know, and on the Bond stage, especially because of the scale of it, um, it can get extremely cold, you know. And um, I imagine that a lot of the a lot of episode seven will be shot on on uh, <clears throat> on the Bond stage. Uh, I, I would have thought because there's you know that's the largest sound stage we have at Pinewood. Um, there are additional stages there now that were recently constructed, um, but um, you know the Bond stage is still the biggest that we have, I think. So uh, I, I imagine that that if they if they'd shot in January, they, they would have been JJ would not have been a happy man. You know, whereas uh, now it's getting a little bit warmer, so it should be just just nice, I think, for the for the senior citizens in the cast, if there are any. <laughs> well, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, maybe that's a place where they'll be building the uh, full size Millennium Falcon. We've heard about. Well, I actually think you could probably fit the Falcon in a smaller stage. I don't think you could probably do that. I, th- I think, um, yeah, I wouldn't be wouldn't be surprised, but. Uh, <clears throat> but the bond stage would definitely be, they'll save that for the big stuff. The so, big stuff, uh, awesome. Yeah, awesome. it's such a such a large area. It's not really something you want to divide up. You know, like like you can get a kind of a medium sized stage, and you might put sort of two or three sets in there. You know, but like for the bond stage, it's like the reason you you hire that is because it's enormous and you want to make a statement. You know, it's it's like that's what they use for you know giant giant ruins or if. Uh, if you've got like a, a Bond villain base, you know that's where they put it. You know because it's it's just such a big big area. You know, mm-hmm. I know when they did when they did Prometheus when we were over there for that and like they, they were shooting Prometheus and the, the back of the stage was opened up and extended uh, by about almost the same again. So if you walk around the sound stage, you know you'd have like all the kind of you know all the sort of familiar kind of entrance to the caves and and the the giant head and all that, and then you'd have all the uh, the space jockey and stuff, you know, all kind of housed in there. But they had to they had to double the length of the stage to fit everything they wanted for the for the for Prometheus. So you can you can only imagine what they might need to do for for Star Wars. And mm-hmm. there've definitely been a lot of construction over there just lately. So I think in anticipation of all the Marvel movies that are shooting at Pinewood too. So. Ah. Uh, you know, you go, I think yeah. uh, I think um, Pinewood is definitely kind of hands down kind of got a lot more space than any of the stage at the moment. And I know that over at Leavesden, you know, where before that was bought by uh, by Warner Brothers, it was um, it was an re- extremely cold stage to work at. So and very kind of open, and the soundproofing wasn't great. You'd hear airplanes go by sometimes and things like that. Um, and uh, I imagine when they were working on Phantom Menace over at um, at least in it, it must have been a bit of a nightmare because that that place at the wrong at the wrong time of year could be absolutely freezing cold because it was never built to be a stage. It was meant to be like a, an aircraft factory. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, like uh, back when back when that was happening, you know, I think I think uh, people were you know when they first started using it. I think they first started using Leesden as a stage for for a Bond movie. I think that's what the that what it was purchased for, I think, wasn't it, Jimmy? I think initially. <laughs> You're asking me. You're the guy out there. Okay. You're and the then, guy uh, out there hobnobbing amongst all these uh <laughs> iconic sound stages in London and uh you know, I'm out here in the Chicago suburbs. I can tell you where uh 
Oprah's Harpo Productions is located. Uh, well, that's kind of cool. What they use that for. But uh, Leavesden, of course, you know, that's I, I know that as being a familiar shooting spot for oh, previous was, Star was Wars films. Difficult place to work. I worked on a few Harry Potter movies out there, and it was, I can tell you, freeze your ears off. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, and then Warner's bought it, and they, they did like a huge, I can't remember, multi-million dollar, you know, uh, revamp. And, uh, you know, off the back of all the money they made from, from Harry Potter, you know, and it's, you'd barely, you'd barely recognize it. They built like a new water tank and, and it's now, and now it's all soundproofed and lagged and, and, uh, been totally kind of rebuilt from the inside out. But originally it just, I mean, it literally felt like walking around a big abandoned factory, you know? And so when they were shooting Phantom Menace, you'd have, you know, you'd have stages over in the corner, but like the largest area would just feel like a big empty hangar, you know? Mm-hmm. So, it's a, a strange place to work, whereas the rest of the sound stages you get, you know, all the British studios, you know, it's very definitely been built for film. You can tell like, all the walls are lagged and, you know, there's, there's no kind of big gaps for the air to get in or anything. You know, it's all it's all soundproofed. Yeah. And all that, it it serves its purpose much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you get a size of the massive scale of mm. these places by, you know, looking at the behind the scenes footage that's included in uh, DVDs and whatnot as bonus content. But uh yeah. But yeah, really, um, what what incredible insight you've given me. I, I, I wasn't uh, anticipating you laying so many cool behind-the-scenes stories on us this Going week. Going off a tangent completely, as usual. No, but yeah. that's great. That's fantastic. I, I love that. I absolutely love that. And I, I love, I, I'm sorry, Paul? Let me give you an idea about how big Leaston can be to get around, right? Like, now, you see, these, you see these little, you know, little golf trolleys, right? Yeah, yeah. You see those kind of going from stage to stage, like in, in Leavesden Studios proper inside one of the sound stages, they use they use golf trolleys to literally get from one side of the stage to the other. Yes. So you get you get the idea, like, and it'll take them a while. It'll take them like five or six minutes to get across the sound stage. So that's that's how big some of those places are. It's like you know, it's a a room at the studio. You know, and it's it's like taking forever just to get across the room. You know, oh, it's like a football stadium. I mean, it's yeah, just amazing. it gives you a sense of the scale that you don't necessarily get yeah. from you know watching the behind the scenes stuff. But. There's a great clip of George. I believe it's at the very end of the documentary, the beginning from mm. uh, Star Wars Episode it's One, great, and it's it? it's him peeling out in a golf cart, or as you call them, golf trolleys. We call them <laughs> golf carts. But um, yeah, is it go? Yeah. He's he's got the two blue. Twilight girls that are uh, Sebulba's masseuses. They're mm-hmm. they're riding shotgun with him in a golf cart. And they go they go tooling off, and I'm just like, where? What's George up to with them? You know, but <laughs> God bless him. That's you know that's a perk he deserves. A couple of yeah, they, they keep the old department well away from Twilights. Yeah, <laughs> Twilights. I call them Twilights. I, yeah. I hear him called Twilights and Twilights. I've no idea. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what is the proper pronunciation? I guess it only matters if you're one of them. <laughs> <laughs> if you, yeah, if you go with the audio books, and it's, it's going to confuse you even more. Oh God, how about it? Yeah, yeah. That's. I think the blue ones are Twilex, and the the orange ones are Twilex. <laughs> the thing that makes me laugh when you listen to the audio books, the Star Wars audio books, is how if you get like um, English accents, they're completely over the map. Like like. Um, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, crikey. What's his name from Rogue Squadron? Um, Wedge Antilles? Yeah, Wedge. If you get, oh, I had a blank there for a minute. Wedge's accent has been every accent under the sun. We've had like Scottish, Welsh, <laughs> Irish, uh, Liverpudlian, you know. <laughs> so for you, it'd be like New York, you know, West Coast, South Coast, you know. 
<laughs> hey, hey, John, hey, Paul, lock X-Wing foils in attack position. Oh, some Birmingham. You all right, mate? How you doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, you know what? One of these days, it is my goal for us to take over the production of those audiobooks. I would love it. I yeah, would love I would it. Get the, get the people that know the material, right? Get them in. <laughs> get them in. Get them in. Make it happen, Captain. That'd and then, awesome. you know, I mean... These little 10-minute snippets are nowhere near enough. No, no. And I, you know what? I just I, I could really see myself doing a full one. I, I would love to do the Han Solo, Brian oh. Daly novels. I, I think that's oh, just oh, really, that would be so cool. That, that would oh, just be that. fantastic. So maybe we can make that happen. I think if, if we keep making enough noise about it, maybe the uh, squeaky wheel will get the grease. I mean, I've got like probably almost every audio book there's been, but I think like if you look at the... If you look at the kind of like full cast audio dramas, they're the, they're the ones that really rock my boat. You know, like you, you listen to the radio shows and you listen to the few that they did based on the comic books and things like that. They're the ones that really kind of set you alight, aren't they? Where you just think this is like being immersed in a Star Wars movie. This is fantastic. And even though it's fantastic that all these other books are out there with, you know, fantastic people reading them, it's not quite the same experience, is it? It's a totally different experience when you get a, a well-produced full cast kind of audio drama. And I think that's that's what really you know, like that rocks Star Wars fans like big time. But they can be expensive and time consuming to produce, can't they? I imagine. But um, I, th- I think in the in the hands of the right people, when when they when they do do that, I think it's it just takes it to a, a completely different level to to just having one person read it out loud. Yeah, I could do it fast. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> you could, man. I bet you could. So. So, Paul, um, I, I, we got to wrap it up. Unfortunately, we're we're a little bit over time here. Um, but uh, for everyone I, 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 listening to the show, I recommend you check out Star Wars Insider 148 and check out Paul Bateman's incredible painting, continuing the work of Ralph McQuarrie, fully realizing Vader's retreat, his his castle in the snowy mountain range of some planet we don't know which one but <laughs> and then a really sharp looking uh look at vader's tie fighter i wanted to talk a little more about that ship on this show but maybe we could get to it in future shows but that's always been one of my favorite original trilogy ship designs is vader's advanced tie fighter it's uh such a great looking ship and and just to see it flying uh you know across this mountain range uh with the uh, castle in the background, it, it, it reminds me a lot of Marvel Comics number 29, Dark Encounter, which featured Vader uh, having a showdown with Valance the Hunter, and he tracks him down to this planet that has it's a castle that's surrounded by this polluted lake of water. Uh, they make the lake look like it's hot lava, but uh, I think it's supposed to represent this just very toxic body of water. And, yeah. it, you know, like it's more like acidic than lava based. But um, it, it, this, this image that you did for Insider just kind of reminds me of that image in the old Marvel comics as Vader brings in his advanced TIE fighter across that polluted lake toward that castle where mm-hmm. a guy named uh, Valance the Hunter, he was a bounty hunter, he was, he was hiding... Oh, I remember him. He was kind of like a bit cyborg wasn't he? Yes, yeah. He, he had a you know robot arm, robot eye. Uh, yeah, very cyborg They called him the Borg a lot and uh, <laughs> or cyborg or whatever. I, I don't want to get Star Trek-y, but... Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, just that, that image sort of just, you know, takes me back to... Uh, 
you know, it's a great panel from the old Marvel comics. So uh, maybe I'll do a, a make a scan of that one and uh, put it up on the um, on the I'll website as well. Give give folks a little exclusive too in that. Um you know, I was t- talking to Jonathan uh, Wilkins from the insider, the wonderful genius, superstar, lovely editor, friend of ours, <laughs> like you couldn't guess. Um, uh, Bond, uh, Bondcast co-host. Yes, uh, about you know what what to do next after the the castle and um, and and uh, Jonathan was sort of saying that it would be it might be quite nice to see the inside of the castle. So um, where where I went next was exactly that. I did uh, an image that's based on the inside, and you're going to find it. Um, interesting for a number of reasons, I think, some of which I, I won't tell you, but one of the reasons is that um, it contains a few kind of concepts that I don't think are very common knowledge to people, um, including a, a number of bounty hunters that Ralph came up with that didn't make it into the movie. Uh, one in particular that I don't think anybody's ever seen. So um, another reason to pick up the insider, like you need another and, and the reason, but, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, full of brilliant stuff at the minute. That's great, man. That's you know, and that's original art you can only find in Star Wars Insider. So, you know, I've heard a lot of people going, "Oh, with the internet, why do I need a Star Wars magazine?" Well, you know what? <laughs> so you can see cool stuff like uh, features like Macquarie Revisited. So, Paul, did, did you? Re- did, I'm sorry to go off at tangent just for one second, but did you read the the Splinter the Mind's Eye pieces that they had in? Yes, those were fantastic. That, yeah. That's the, exactly the kind of reason you need to read the Insider is because that was that was like eight pages of information that I I hadn't heard. Absolutely, and you yeah. know you know what nerds we are about all that sort of stuff. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, and it, it also you know it, it shine a lot of light on where George's head was at the time concerning a lot of those characters <laughs> and what direction he wanted them to go in. Uh, and, what, and what that might mean about the sequels? Because I mean, if the, all that stuff is still in the back of George's head, then it relates forward, doesn't it? It's it could, all- yeah. Very much so, very much so. So, yeah, that, that's another perfect example of why people should be reading that awesome magazine, Star Wars Insider. Subscribe to it now. You know how to get it. So, okay, cool, man. Thank you so much, uh, Paul. It was really just a blast talking to you, uh, picking your mind about uh, things like Thanks Mustafar and the planets and getting so- that behind-the-scenes information from you about being on the set at uh, Revenge of the Sith and all that. So I got to sit down and watch Revenge of the Sith again because I owe that to myself. I really need to sort of bone up and learn more about that film because that's the one Star Wars film that's been sort of elusive to me lately uh, for whatever reason, you know? Yeah. So there was a there's the moment when when... Uh, Palpatine apparently, and gosh, see, now I'm going off on a tangent when I should be <laughs> saying goodbye. But um, we talked about it on the Clone Wars roundtable. Did Palpatine know that Anakin was married to Padme? He obviously knew that Anakin cared a great deal for Padme, but did, did he know that they were actually married? And I guess there's a line of dialogue in the film itself where he says, save your wife, you know? And it's at that moment when he starts revealing his, his true identity is, is the Sith Lord to Anakin. And he says that, and for some reason that, that line totally escapes me. I'm, I'm a Star Wars fan who needs to know like the back of my hand, every line of dialogue. There can't be any gray areas. And for me to have not committed that to memory, that scene when he says mm. that, that is unforgivable for me. So I have it's, to go. I got to go to Star Wars school. <laughs> it's funny how we all kind of lock into different aspects of the movies, isn't it? Because for me, I'm like going through it, kind of going, "That's a Doug, that's a Doug Chang design. That's a Mark <laughs> Cabana design. That's a you know." 
whoever it is that's popping up. So I'm going through kind of checklisting all the different artwork, you know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that shit came from him. That, you know. yes. yes. And of course, Joe Johnston <laughs> from the original trilogy, who I don't think, you know, God bless Ralph. Ralph definitely is in the spotlight, and he, he does get a lot of the credit. But I think Joe Johnston <laughs> deserves the lion's oh. share for the design too. And uh, Absolutely. Joe was amazing. And, uh, yeah, I really, really hope he gets his – his dream happens, and I hope they let him direct a Boba movie. That yes, would be amazing. That would be amazing. He's a he's a brilliant artist, a great filmmaker, and awesome special effects the guy. Thing, the thing I've noticed a lot just recently, Jimmy, is is you know like a lot of photographs have been surfacing all over the net just recently of of uh, many many behind the scenes shots that are unfamiliar to to even the you know the most kind of hardcore of Star Wars fans. There's a lot of stuff that's starting to kind of appear, and um, so many of those photographs you see Joe in, and you think. Was there any department that Joe didn't have a hand in? You know, I think unlike any other artist that worked on Star Wars from the start, I think, I think you know, Joe was so involved in every aspect of that movie. You see him actually physically finishing, like, the Boba Fett helmet up. You see him actually painting the models themselves, you know? And, and it just seems like he had his, his hands on, like, so many things on those movies. Yeah. That uh, it seems like a no-brainer that they should they should let him uh, steer one of the one of the ancillary films for sure. sure. I think. I mean, you'd even see him, uh, you know, painting models. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he's involved with the model shop. You'd see him on stage at the special effects stage at ILM, actually contributing to the the actual shooting of things. There was just really and not. It- not an element he wasn't involved in. So uh, he was wearing a stormtrooper outfit, and that you know that scene when the um, uh, it was it was a shot that Ralph designed of the of the Falcon kind of coming into the into the Death Star from sideways on, and uh, uh, I believe that Ralph painted the map for for part of that, and and you get like this this uh, two stormtroopers looking up. And in, in the Ralph study, it's like he's drawing these two little stormtroopers. And then in the actual film, it's one of the, one of those stormtroopers is Joe. Yeah, he's known Joe. as the space trooper because yeah. he's you know <laughs> obviously exposed to the vacuum of space. But yeah. he has a big metal backpack on that sort of yeah. you know, supplies him with the oxygen. And it was, Hasbro actually made a figure of it that you could remove the helmet. And there's Joe Johnston right in there. They really yeah. didn't, know that. Yes, really absolutely cool. they did. <laughs> oh, I have to get one of those now. I didn't know you could get a Joe figure. So, but that is the ultimate tribute right there if you get your own hmm. Star Wars action figure. So hats off to Joe Johnston, hats off to Ralph <laughs> McQuarrie, and everyone who developed the iconic design of the Star Wars universe. That's what we like to talk about on this show every month. And, uh, Paul, I, I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about next month just by judging... Uh, judging by the fact that we are having an incredible difficulty wrapping up this show. <laughs> so we're going to have to do that. Sorry, sorry people that turn into a Ralph cast, but I do have a tendency to do that. Hey, sorry. that's what it's all about. You know, Ralph McCory, we love him. So uh, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. We'll be back again next month with more Star Wars influences. If there's a certain Star Wars influence or uh, concept that you would like to hear Paul talk more about in great detail, please send us an email show at rebelforceradio.com or contact us via our official Facebook page, facebook.com slash rebelforceradio. Of course, Paul Bateman, you have your own personal Facebook page too that I recommend people check out because you have an incredible archive of behind-the-scenes photography and artwork from uh, the original Star Wars trilogy that you post up on a regular basis so people can track you down at Facebook and uh and uh, when you do so, be sure to like Paul's page and tell him Rebel Force Radio sent you. 
absolutely. It's all, it's all stuff that's out there. It's just, uh, yeah, I'm acting as a filter. If you've seen it a thousand times, it won't get posted. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's always, always rare stuff. So, <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Paul. I'll try to get some images uh, from what we talked about here up on our website so uh, people can have cool. sort of a, a, a visual guide to go along with this show. And, again, thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to talking to you next month on Rebel Force Radio's Star Wars Influences. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, everybody.